Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I'm Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance, and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number four in our series for 2018, and today's date is Friday, March the 9th. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And first of all, I talked to Richard Kimber, the founder of startup company DAISY, or Deep Artificial Intelligence Solutions for Enterprise Ecosystems. He'll be talking to us about artificial intelligence and how it's going to change business. And then I have a chat with economist Saul Eslake. He'll be talking about Donald Trump's plans to increase tariffs for steel and aluminium, the prospect of a trade war, and its impact on the global economy. But first, let's talk to Richard Kimber. Richard Kimber, let's talk about Daisy. You're a startup that builds cutting edge AI applications for business. Tell us about that, and what does a Daisy anagram stand for? Sure, Leon. Uh, well, uh, we build uh, AI applications for business, and and they are incredibly complicated at, at one level, but on the other hand, very very useful for business. So, AI, in a sense, is that is the the latest tool that enables us to use all of the data that enterprises have, and be able to make predictions from it. 
Um, in terms of what DAISY stands for, it's an acronym which stands for Deep Artificial Intelligence Solutions for Enterprise Ecosystems, which is a bit of a mouthful, but uh, we just like to call ourselves DAISY. Right, right. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Now, which markets do you actually target? So we, we have a range of industry verticals that we work with. Um, the, the, probably the most uh, deep and, and wide is, is the financial services uh, market, but we also work in uh, retail um, and also in travel as well. So it actually recently did a survey of, of a range of different Australian businesses and showed that AI really can apply across most of Australian enterprise. But our focus at DAISY is, is predominantly in those three areas. Right, right. So tell me, uh, how does AI actually help businesses? Well, what AI does is it uncovers insights that you, you, you wouldn't know about. And, and that's really the, the essence of it in the sense that the way that um, humans think, we tend to think in, in two or three dimensions, and yet AI can work across 100 dimensions. And so what it does is it allows you to look at factors that you weren't expecting uh, and to also look at all kinds of different data sources, not just the obvious ones. And uh, the, you know, a good example of that is unstructured data, um, data that isn't necessarily captured in a database or in a spreadsheet. Uh, and by overlaying that with your your existing data, that's where you get the real insight. Um, and so that that's a new paradigm for business, and it's something that's that people are only just starting to explore. That's fascinating. So it actually gets into areas that you normally can't get into as a business, or that you normally wouldn't look at. Yeah, exactly, and that's the that's the big change. And so um, what's happened is it's it, all of this data that people have been collecting over the last few years. Uh, you know, starting to now have value and, and relevance. And, and what it does is it helps with things like being able to predict when clients are going to churn. Um, it also is being used for things like a real-time net promoter score where you can actually start to work out, you know, how things are going on the front line. So it's particularly useful for larger businesses where there's, you know, many layers and many reports and many people in between the, the board and, and their actual frontline teams. So I think that's where we're going to see a big change is, is actually being able to really understand what clients are doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, I'd imagine the, the two industries where it would be a, a lay-down mazare would be retail and financial services. Yes, it is. And, um, and certainly in financial services, there are a, a vast array of applications. You know, everything from credit scoring or loan scoring through to compliance, um, but also the marketing area uh, and product management. You know, there are... A, huge number of different use cases where AI is being explored and it really goes a lot further than just the the chat bots that have uh, you know gotten a lot of attention it's a lot deeper and a lot more complex than that. Now tell us about your outlook on the Australian AI market landscape in Australia's study I just saw that the other day and that looks at uh, the uh, application of AI in Australia tell us about that study. Yeah, well, we, we thought uh, it would be a good idea to actually look at uh, how AI is being adopted in Australia and compare it to the international research because the international research, you know, is, is quite widely read and, and understood, but no one's really done a detailed study of Australian business approach to AI, so, so that's why we commissioned the report. Um, the really interesting finding is that, uh, you know, whilst two-thirds of businesses are engaged with AI internationally, it's actually only about half in Australia. So Australia is lagging a little bit in terms of our adoption of AI. And in particular, we have fewer pioneers, which are really the companies that are really at the cutting edge of AI. Uh, we have a lot more clients that, uh, and companies that are at that investigate or experiment phase. 
And so that's interesting because it shows that there really is an appetite for AI, but the uh, the actual adoption and implementation of it is slightly behind the international uh, arena. Right, right. I see, I see. And so, uh, how much investment would would be required in AI? So it really depends on the size of the business. So we we, uh, we did a survey of a small and medium business right through to larger businesses. Uh, and we see custom, uh, clients and companies investing anything from two or three hundred thousand dollars a year, right up to millions of dollars a year at the, at the high end. Um, but interestingly, the average uh, SME or, or medium-sized company probably spends between two and three hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, but we do see that there is a proportion um, of of those medium-sized businesses spending over a million dollars on on AI a year. And that, that number of uh, businesses is, is forecast to double over the next five years. So there's really an increasing uh, agenda for investment in AI across the board. Uh, and we're seeing even smaller companies really looking to invest in it. Now, it's interesting that you say that there are very few pioneers in Australia. How broad an understanding is there in Australian business of AI and what it can actually deliver? Yeah, it's a good question. It, the, the understanding, I think, it does vary. Um, and certainly when we looked across the, uh, the different sectors, it, it varies to both in terms of people's awareness of what it can do. Um, but it's also interesting in that uh, you know, it's, it's seen by some segments as, as both a threat and an opportunity, uh, probably more so in Australia than it is overseas, where, where the majority of people just see it as an opportunity, less as a threat. So I think it's interesting in Australia, we, we sort of got this two-edged sword here where there's also this fear factor that some of the international pioneers might actually come into Australia and, and disrupt some of our industry. So I think for us, it's a, a question of really getting on with it so that we can stave off the international AI pioneers. That's interesting too, because I mean, it's also very advanced in overseas markets, like for example, China, isn't it? <laughs> Yes, indeed. In fact, uh, there is a. In some, some would say there's almost an arms race going on in AI, whereby um, the Chinese are really investing very heavily in, in all of the AI services, um, and they're using it you know, to, to great effect. Um, and so, some of the very large uh, Chinese conglomerates, um, Alibaba is one that that gets a lot of coverage with their Alipay and and other services. They, they've got a very wide ranging um, web network of companies and you know people talk a lot about amazon but actually when you think about uh, some of the large chinese companies they're equally advanced um so i think for australian businesses we, we need to keep an eye both on on the, our neighbors to the north as well as the traditional american and, and european markets well with with that in mind it would it would pay for any australian business wanting to do business in china to actually get on top of ai wouldn't that be right well, definitely. Uh, and I think it's, you know, certainly AI is, a, is an area where, you know, you can actually start quite small uh, and, and there are a number of ways that you can do a pilot um, with, with a certain part of your business or a product or, or a particular uh, aspect of it. So I think the, the time to start investing and in exploring AI is now. Uh, and certainly that's what the research supported. So, you know, as people looking to integrate more with Asia, definitely it's going to be important to be able to integrate with their ecosystem. Now, I have to ask you, what does actually DAISY actually do? How do you actually tackle AI for businesses? What do you actually do? So what DAISY does is we have a, a team of, of highly specialised data scientists, but our, our main focus is on the software of AI. So what we do is we, we take the data science uh, which might also another way of thinking of that is like the statistics and, and the, the prediction. And then we turn it into an application. So it's an AI application that you can then reuse 
install within your own environment. Uh, and that might be used for things like sales forecasting or price prediction or demand prediction. Um, there's a range of different applications that we produce. And, and so that's what we focus on. So it's really the software around AI and, and being able to turn it into something that's useful for business. That's interesting. And uh, and so, I mean, how, how do we compare, say, to the US and UK in terms of AI investment, deployment and understanding? Yeah, so Aaron, I think on the understanding side, we're, we're doing well. Um, there's certainly been a huge uptick in terms of business um, exploring AI and, and really doing research into it. Uh, where we're, we're a little behind is in actually the, the deployment um, and actually applying it into the businesses. So we, all we do over is we've got 9% of our, our businesses are pioneering, um, which compares to around 19% globally. So we are behind in terms of the pioneers of, of AI. Um, and so that, that's really, I think, where, where the, the biggest difference is. So Australia is, is exploring AI. We are definitely engaged with it. We're, I think increasingly businesses are interested in it, but we've just been a little bit slower to, to act and so we probably have some way to go till we catch up with the rest of the world. We do. Um, so although Australia produces um, some terrific data scientists and our universities have very, very strong programs in machine learning um, and deep learning, um, what we have seen historically is that um, a lot of our, our best scientists have, have gone overseas to work. And you know, this is a field where I think we really need to hold on to the talent in Australia uh, and that's why we set up DAISY as a, as a great uh, avenue for our best data scientists to be able to work locally on really, really interesting problems. So I think it's really important that we have local homegrown AI specialist companies um, where we can employ our best and brightest people. Well, Richard, uh, thank you very much for your time. Very welcome. Thanks very much. Thank you. Cheers, Leo. And now let's talk to economist Saul Eslake. Saul Eslake... There's been a lot of talk now about trade wars with uh, Donald Trump upping tariffs for steel and aluminium. What's your view about this? I think it's potentially very concerning, not so much because of the immediate impact that tariffs on steel and aluminium will have on Australia. Our exports of those products to the US are very small in absolute terms and as a proportion of our total trade, but they are much more worrying from a series of broader perspectives, including the sheer ignorance of basic economics that the President of the United States has displayed in arguing for these tariffs to be imposed, the risks of retaliatory measures from other countries who will be more affected by these measures than Australia will, which could mark the beginning of what could end up being a trade war. And third, because of the risk that there will be people in Australia who argue that we should do what the Americans are doing, as some other people have argued in the context of the debate over company tax, for example. So all of those three developments are, I think, potentially extremely worrying. And it's important to remember that these aren't the first increases in tariffs that the Trump administration has proposed. Already, they have increased tariffs on imports of timber, particularly from Canada, and from products such as solar panels and domestic washing machines. And 
many countries who will be affected more seriously than us by the proposed tariffs on steel and aluminium may be thinking to themselves that if they don't draw the line at these latest measures, the protectionists in the American administration who clearly have the president's ear and the upper hand in whatever internal debate might be going on there, uh, will feel emboldened to impose even more tariffs on a broader range of goods. So, as I say, there's a lot of things to be worried about here. Now, uh, what are the prospects of retaliatory measures by, say, the EU and China? Well, the EU have already foreshadowed that they might respond by imposing tariffs on some iconic American exports to Europe, such as Harley-David motorcycles, bourbon and Levi's jeans. They're obviously selected because they would attract some attention in the United States without doing any serious damage to the European economy, since these are not important inputs into any European production process and wouldn't affect a great many European citizens. But as the president of the European Union observed, uh, we, that is the European Union, can do stupid as well. And this really underscores one of the more important points that economists readily agree upon, even if they have difficulty convincing the general public of this, that raising tariffs is a stupid thing to do. Tariffs are not, as most people seem to think, something that you make foreigners pay in order to get your their goods into your country. They are, in fact, something that you make your own consumers pay in order to keep foreign goods out of the country. So when Donald Trump for example, says, as he did in his inaugural speech in January last year, that protection will bring prosperity and strength. He's really using protection in the same way that the mafia does when they use the term protection. It will not create prosperity and strength. It will weaken the US economy. It will undermine the competitiveness of industries that use steel or aluminium. And that includes things from motor vehicle manufacturers all the way down to uh, producers of soft drink and beer that are put in cans. It will raise prices at a time when there's already concern about inflationary pressures building, albeit from a very low level, and from the potential consequences of the Trump administration's spectacularly ill-timed, from a cyclical perspective, fiscal stimulus measures. The main casualties of uh, what the Trump administration is proposing will be American consumers, not Chinese workers. China accounts for only about 3% of all the steel that's imported into the United States. The biggest casualties among US trade partners of what the Trump administration is proposing are Canada and Korea, who are military and political allies of the United States, together with Brazil, who's the second most important country in the Americas after the United States itself. It won't be China at all. Uh, the Chinese will probably be thinking to themselves as they decide whether and if so how to retaliate against what the Americans are proposing is whether or not this measure portends 
actions which would be more directly directed at China and hurt its interests. And in many ways, you can draw a sort of parallel with the behaviour of China itself and Russia in a different sphere. Over the last five years or so, we've seen, for example, the Obama administration draw what it called a red line over Syria's use of chemical weapons in that country's civil war. And when the Assad administration used uh, chemical weapons against its own people, in the end, the red line counted for naught and America did nothing. When Russia invaded Georgia and Crimea, the United States and its NATO allies did nothing. When China started building military bases on coral reefs in the South China Sea, when the International Court, which has jurisdiction over the law of the sea, ruled against China in a case brought by the Philippines, and China ignored the ruling altogether and went on with its military measures in the South China Sea, the rest of the world did nothing. On each of those occasions, the fact that the US and its allies, or the world as a whole, did nothing despite these flagrant breaches of international law and practice by China and Russia, it emboldened both of those regimes to do even more of it. And that's part of the risk that other countries have to consider in this context, that if there is no reaction to the US's uh, proposed steps here, the protectionists in the American administration will feel emboldened to go further. And at some point, possibly further down the track than this, uh, the reaction from other countries could be very damaging, not only to them, but the entire world economy. And that's the concern that Australia must have, is that even though we're not seriously directly affected by these measures, the fact that we're unable to get any exemptions from them shows how little our free trade agreement with the United States is really worth and just how little a 100 years of mateship actually matters to the Americans on questions such as this. But we're more likely to be hurt by the measures that other countries may take in retaliation to this or future U.S. protectionist measures, as I think Thucydides said in one of his histories of ancient Greece, big countries do what they will and small countries like Australia suffer as they must. Right, right. And certainly the prospect of there not being any exemptions is quite a worry, quite a concern. Well, yes, uh, because it does show how little traction Australia really has in the halls of power in Washington when our issues are seriously at stake. The free trade agreement signed with the United States by the Howard administration has not really done anything to expand trade between Australia and the United States. Indeed, the only good thing from an Australian perspective that's really come out of it was the E1B visa that allows Australians to live and work in the United States without having to participate in the green card lottery that Donald Trump finds so offensive. And the bilateral surplus which the United States runs with Australia has actually increased since the free trade agreement was signed. One might say, using Donald Trump's own words, how did we agree to such a dumb deal? But this draws attention to the complete lack of understanding of 
basic economics by the Trump administration and those who advise it. President Trump has said in one of his tweets about this issue that when you're running as big a trade deficit as the US is with so many countries, trade wars are easy to start and win. Now, that's just utter poppycock. The reason the US runs such a big trade deficit with so many countries is because its aggregate saving exceeds its aggregate, uh, sorry, its aggregate investment exceeds its aggregate savings by a wide margin, and the US needs to import foreign capital in order to fund the level of investment it wants to undertake. And in order to import foreign capital on net, you have to run a trade deficit so that the balance of payments can balance. All that trade restrictions do is alter the bilateral patterns of trade uh, that one country has with others. And if, as the Trump administration seems to think, that the sheer existence of a deficit between the United States and one other country is prima facie evidence that that other country is engaging in some kind of unfair trade practices, then he needs to look at the bilateral trade relationship between the US and Australia, where the US persistently runs surpluses on its trade with Australia, despite running deficits with most other countries and with the world as a whole. And that's basically because there is not much complementarity between the Australian and US economies. But another reason for it is that the US still imposes some pretty serious barriers to Australian exports of a range of agricultural goods and also some manufactured goods like uh, fast ferries and other forms of marine transport. Right. So basically, this initiative by Donald Trump will end up being very bad for the US economy. And Worrelling could be very bad for the global economy if it's allowed to go on. That's right, although it's very bad, not so much because of these two specific measures themselves, but because they appear to be part of a series of measures that indicate the US is drifting towards a more protectionist way of operating. And as I say, a Another concern from the Australian perspective is that there will be people here in Australia who say, not in as many words, that because the Americans are doing something incredibly stupid, we should do something incredibly stupid as well by imposing similar increases in tariffs on steel or aluminium or indeed a range of other products that foreigners can produce more cheaply than we can. Saul Leslake, it's always been a delight to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, that's a pleasure, Leon. Talk to you again soon. So what's happening in the news? Well, the European Union is preparing punitive tariffs on iconic US brands if President Donald Trump follows through on his tariff threat. Trump surprised many when he said the US would impose a 25% tariff on seal imports and a 10% tariff on aluminium. A list drawn up by the European Commission targets US goods, including motorcycles, jeans and bourbon whiskey. And that sends a political message to Washington about the potential domestic economic costs of making good on the president's threat. Canada and China have also vowed to respond with tariffs of their own. And US President Donald Trump's top economic advisor, Gary Kahn, has resigned after losing his battle with the president over tariffs. If a full-blown trade war does break out, 
The impact could be extremely damaging to the global economy and, of course, the Australian economy. Deloitte Access Economics has warned that 20,000 jobs here could be lost. Shane Oliver, Head of Investment Strategy and Chief Economist at AMP Capital, described Trump's steel and aluminium tariffs as bad policy at a bad time, which he said would only add to the risk of a trade war. Some exemptions, though, may be granted to specific products deemed necessary to US businesses. The President's trade advisers have not specified under what circumstances exemptions may be considered, but they're likely to be confined to specific types of steel or aluminium products used by different industries which may not be made at all in the US. The ABC, meanwhile, has reported that Donald Trump emphatically promised to exempt Australian steel and aluminium from US tariffs during a meeting with Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull last year. According to the ABC, the promise was witnessed by high-ranking officials on both sides of the meeting, which was held on the sidelines of a G20 meeting in Hamburg, Germany, in July 2017. Among those in the US delegation who saw the undertaking firsthand were US Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, and White House Chief Economics Advisor Gary Com. On the Australian side were Finance Minister Matthias Cormann and the Deputy Secretary of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, David Grian. Australian ministers in key portfolios have been lobbying their US counterparts hard over the issue, making the same national defence argument the Trump administration used to justify the shift to protectionism. Defence Minister Maurice Payne made the case to US Defence Secretary Jim Mattis, while Julie Bishop has also reached out to Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. But US Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross says President Trump is not considering any exemptions to the sweeping steel and aluminium tariffs announced last week. China, meanwhile, has set a 2018 growth target of around 6.5% as leaders intensify their push to ensure financial stability without derailing the economic expansion. The target was released on Monday ahead of Premier Li Keqing's report to the National People's Congress gathering in Beijing. This comes at a time when President Xi Jinping will be bolstered by the legislature's approval of an end to presidential term limits. And this week produced some grim figures for the Australian economy. Australian retailers are doing it hard, with only an insipid rise in sales being recorded in January after a surprisingly weak pre-Christmas sales period. Sales edged up in January by just 0.1% in seasonally adjusted terms. The latest figures from the Australian Bureau of Statistics failed to claw back much of a 0.5% slump in December. The market had expected a solid rebound of between 0.3 and 0.4%. The weakness was evident across most sectors, with only pockets of growth in categories such as pharmaceuticals and cosmetics, as well as books and newspapers showing a bit of a pickup. Australia's current account deficit widened to $14.02 billion in the three months of December. That's up from the September quarter's $11.01 billion. And that's because of increased imports and flat exports. It's the largest deficit since the September quarter of 2016, which was $14.2 billion. Now, Australian Bureau of Statistics figures show Australian economic growth slowed down in the final three months of 2017, with GDP growing by 0.4% in seasonally adjusted terms in the December quarter, undershooting forecasts for an increase of 0.5%. The year-on-year growth rate slowed to 2.4% from 2.9%, below the 2.5% level expected by both the RBA and economists alike. 
and the ANZ Australian Job Advertisement Series fell 0.3% in February on the back of a sharp 6.2% rise the previous month. The number of job ads currently sits at 3.13.3% higher than a year ago. And in trend terms, job ads were up 0.9% in February following a similar increase in the previous two months. But the annual trend rate slowed from 12.4% in January to 12.1% last month. And in a widely anticipated decision, the Reserve Bank of Australia has kept interest rates at the record low level of 1.5% for the 19th consecutive month. The market had priced in no change factoring in weak inflation and business investment figures. The RBA has kept interest rates at that level since August 2016. In the statement to the market, RBA Governor Philip Lowe did not indicate when the RBA expected the Australian economic growth to return to 3%, saying only that the RBA expected it to grow faster in 2018 than it did in 2017. The RBA said inflation is likely to remain low for some time, reflecting low growth in labour costs and strong competition in retailing. While further progress in reducing unemployment and having inflation return to target is expected, this progress, according to the RBA, is likely to be gradual. And after an ugly plunge in January, Australian building approval soared. According to ABS statistics, total approvals jumped by 17.1%, unwinding most of a 20% decline the previous month. The support of interest rates and solid finance results suggest that building approvals and housing construction will remain solid in 2018. Now to corporate news, and Crownbet has moved into third position behind Tabcor and Sportsbet as Australia's biggest wagering operator with a $300 million acquisition of William Hill Australia. Crownbet signed the William Hill deal on Tuesday night in a tight contest to pick up the international wagering giant. Rival internet bookmaker Sportsbet was the other contender to pick up the Tom Waterhouse-led operation of William Hill Australia after a London-listed parent company put the business up for sale earlier this year. Crownbet's ownership structure changed significantly last week, with Canada's The Stars Group becoming the new majority owner, taking over from Crown Resorts. Crownbet was in a good position to secure William Hill Australia with the support of The Stars Group, which owns two of the world's largest poker sites, Poker Stars and Full Tilt Poker, and runs poker games and tournaments for 115 million customers around the world. And the deal would increase its market share even more with Western Australian Treasurer Ben Wyatt saying he's ready for talks around the potential sale of his state's wagering arm, WA Bet. Crown Bet might have an advantage if that deal goes ahead, because William Hill is already contracted as WA Tab's exclusive fix-odds betting partner. Now, Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation and Telstra have signed definitive agreements for the merger of Foxtel and Fox Sports, clearing the way for the deal to be completed by the end of the financial year. The merger will see News Corp take a 65% stake in the new entity, with Telstra moving to 35%. Right now, Foxtel is 50-50 owned by Telstra and News Corp, while Fox Sport is 100% owned by the Murdoch-controlled publisher. And Aussie Farmers Direct has been put into administration after racking losses of more than $27 million over the last five years and losing customers and sales to the major supermarket chains and meal kit startups. It will close immediately, leaving more than 100 franchisees and 260 employees out of work and about 100,000 customers potentially with unfulfilled orders. The company appointed Cordamenta as administrator. 
and the Fair Work Commission has officially approved the merger of the militant maritime and construction unions, blocking the Turnbull government's bid to stop the new super union. The ruling, which will likely be subject to appeal by employer groups, gives a green light to the historic amalgamation between the two militant unions, which employers fear will destabilise the resources and construction industries. Deputy President Val Gostechnik held there was nothing preventing the merger and fixed March 27th as the date on which the amalgamation will take effect. He rejected the arguments from the Australian Mines and Metals Association and the Master Builders Association that a contempt case against the MUA and dozens of pending penalty cases for workplace breaches prevented the unions from merging. However, he said his decision should not be read as condoning the union's conduct. And that's it for Talking Business this week. And next week, we bring a great interview with Michelle Duval, a business coach. In the meantime, if you want to catch up with us, you can tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBIZ or on Facebook. Take care, have a great week, and looking forward to bring you all the news next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 